Hey fam, welcome to Big Brother and the Hodling Company, a podcast about music and Web3 and trying to fend off Big Brother. I'm McKeegan Voice. Today I spoke with Kat Rogers, who's a music journalist and the community lead of Water and Music, which is a music research decentralized autonomous organization, or DAO. Hailing from Northern Ireland and now London-based, Kat has written for everyone from NME to DJ Mag to Stereo Gum to Tech Radar. And she's shepherded water and music from a nascent Web2 community to a full-blown 2,000-member DAO of music industry experts the whole world round. We chatted about her music journey, one that started and continues with Bjork, and the involving, or perhaps not yet existent role, of music journalists within Web3. And we get an inside look at the cogs and inner machinations of water and music, whose important research and potent, bleeding-edge analysis is creating a more transparent and better-informed music industry. Hope you all enjoy the conversation. Here we go. All right. Hey, Kat. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, right back at you. I've I've been really... Really excited to chat with you because we have have taken kind of a similar journey from more more traditional music journalism and into the into this wild wild world of Web three. <laughs> um, so so I'm keen to just hear more about your story and your background and how that transition has been for you. But um, as always, I'd love to start at the beginning, just get more you know more of a sense of you, you know where you grew up and and when your relationship with music started. Yeah, of course. Um, so I am from the middle of nowhere in Northern Ireland. Like my next door neighbors were pig farmers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like very much um, like the deep countryside. And uh, my relationship with music started when I was pretty young, as did everyone, I think. Um, <laughs> the first uh, music I ever really remember falling in love with was uh, my parents got a free CD with a newspaper and mm. it was best ever uh, festival sets, like a collection of like sets from festivals. Um, mm. And one of those performances was Bjork, um, nice. or I should say Bjork, um, <laughs> mm. singing yoga at a festival in Iceland. And I became completely obsessed with Bjork. I think mm. I was like 11 or 12. Um just completely fascinated with her cool uh and then for my 13th birthday i got given tickets to go see her at the waterfront hall in belfast with my dad and <laughs> yeah I, I went along with my dad and i covered my face in like really bright colored eyeshadow and <laughs> i put my hair into like loads of tiny space suns like bjork mm-hmm. wears her hair in the venus as a boy video um and i just had like obviously the best night of my life um so yeah that was the first time i remember falling in love with music was with bjork that makes me sound like a hopelessly pretentious 13 year old which i absolutely was i'm definitely not not denying that um it makes you you sound like a pretty cool aware you know you know pretty slightly badass 13 year old i say Thank you. Um, I was just a little, like a tiny art freak, I think. Fair. I mean, that's that's um, more culturally aware than what I what I think I was listening to when I was thirteen. So, <laughs> um, so what happens? You know, okay. So you're you you become a massive Bjork fan. Um, you saw her live. What happened next? Um, I think the next milestone in my musical journey was um I got really into Tori Emos again not mm. beating the pretentious uh, <laughs> adolescent allegations um kind of made my way through lots of 90s music I was really into Sonic Youth as well mm. um was really into Kate Bush obviously mm. um and I think the next big musical moment for me was that I began writing about music um mm. I started my own blog that was called the music box it doesn't exist in the internet anymore mm-hmm. i've like very much made sure that it does not exist in any form really? in the internet anymore um but i yeah i would i would write reviews of concerts um well not concerts actually because i was too young to go to concerts i would write reviews of records um and i would do my own like top 10 lists 
like mm. I was actually a music critic, um, which is <laughs> hilarious that I that I thought anyone would care. Um, but I, from that blog, I began writing for websites for free, um, mm-hmm. primarily so I could get into concerts without having ID because I worked out that if you're on the guest list for a show, they don't check your ID because mm, well you're on the guest list. So if you're like a 15-year-old, you can get into a concert and it doesn't matter that you're under wow, 18. Good trick. Um, yeah, it was it was pretty great. Um, so that was my uh, that was like a scheme that I ran on <laughs> on lots of uh, venues in in Belfast, which is my new city. Um, over the over the next year or two, um, and then I actually was contacted by Enemy mm-hmm. to come join their album reviews team. Amazing. Um, which was yeah a big a big moment for me. So that was the first time I ever got paid to write. Um, was writing for enemy um and i yeah i wrote for them for the next like i mean i still write for enemy sometimes but i guess like the next like four or five years um until i went to university so yeah that's how i got started in music journalism really cool um yeah i mean that's such a big moment that that kind of you know evolution from writing for free to actually having you know someone pay you for it yeah it's always really significant i think that yeah. moment where you're like oh this is actually like a skill that people um want to pay me for yeah totally uh yeah it, uh, what i think was a pretty similar journey I've, i had my own blog that was called hits from the blog <laughs> that i do not think i've scoured from the internet so probably still exists uh and you know there's a lot of free writing before someone actually starts paying you and i you know i don't know if it was the same for you but like the first couple years um of of my journalism i was i wasn't you know i was getting paid peanuts it wasn't it wasn't much it was something and i was happy and grateful that anybody was giving me anything to be doing this but not something you can live on absolutely not like not even nearly enough to live on (laughs) yeah completely so so when uh you know so you went to university and you'd already written you know, for enemy at the, at that point, which is which is pretty cool. Like, what you know, did that inform your path and you know the choices that you were making, the things that you were studying? You know, when you were at university. Yeah, I went to study English literature, which I think um, is the de facto degree for people who <laughs> kind of like writing but don't mm-hmm. really know what they want to do with their life. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I went to study at UCL here in London. Uh, it was an incredible course, um, and it definitely made me a better writer. So I'm very grateful for that. Cool. And I mean, what did you continue to write about music throughout your time there? I did, yeah, on and off. Um, definitely not really in, uh, I guess, like a concentrated way because. I was aware that um, I I think I became more wise to the fact that being a music journalist isn't necessarily the most viable of career paths. Um, Yeah, indeed. So I guess I was kind of preparing myself for inevitably having to um, diversify. Right. And once you graduated, were you faced with that reality? What you know, what did the couple of years after graduation look like? Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, I, <laughs> I did for like a while, like kind of very naively try and get a full-time <laughs> editorial role. Um, mm. and that didn't, yeah, didn't really happen for me, obviously. Um, I mean, I graduated in 2015 and it wasn't like the recession recession, but the jobs market wasn't particularly lively I would Mm -hmm. say um and I had rent to pay right and I was very keen not to have to move back to the countryside because I think I had the fear that if I moved back I would never move back to London again Mm -hmm. you know um Mm -hmm. and also I did and still do find it really really boring in the countryside Um, (laughs) it's not really my thing (laughs) um so I actually ended up doing what most people 
again, what most people who don't really know what they want to do with their lives do. And I did a grad scheme um, at a management consultancy here in London, um, which looking back on it, I'm really grateful that I did because um, it it's really useful to have like general commercial skills and to have like a solid level of commercial awareness and how businesses work. And I think that's something that I do use in my day-to-day life a lot. It's like something that I rely on, but ultimately management consulting wasn't necessarily my calling. I would say, I think I'm too much of like, I'm not going to say a loose cannon, but I think that I don't do well with, within big corporate structures where Mm -hmm. there's like very defined, um, routes for success like I think a a lot of people who have been drawn to working in and around web3 would probably agree with that assessment yeah absolutely I know I certainly feel that way um and that seems like a good segue you you know so after your foray into into this more corporate world how did you find your way to web3 that is a really good question um it was quite (laughs) completely accidental um I think lots of people can relate to that but I um I quit my job at the start of the pandemic because I just realized that I didn't want to do this for the rest of my life I mean Mm. I think lots of people who were mildly dissatisfied with their jobs became like extremely satisfied dissatisfied during the start of the pandemic because all the social elements of work were just stripped away and it just made you realize that oh, this is like what I have to do every day for like hmm. the rest of my life. So I quit um, kind of just saying that I would take some time out. And um, my initial game plan was that I would retrain in uh, PR and marketing because that was always the kind of work that I gravitated towards when I was consulting. I would always be the kind of the common person hmm. on a project. And I actually thought that that was, skills that I could use to kind of finagle my way back into the music industry because Mm -hmm. I had that realization that I wasn't working on projects I really loved Um, when I was in consulting I was working on really large scale regulatory projects uh, which wasn't the most inspiring field to work in anyway but certainly when Brexit happened it became even more depressing um and it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't something I felt passionate about. Um, so I thought that this was a pretty good game plan. Um, mm-hmm. So I went back to university. I went to Goldsmiths and I did a master's degree in PR and marketing. Uh, and while I was there, I wrote my dissertation on obviously the music industry, um, mm-hmm. on how um, basically streaming economics has made promotional activities within the music industry more important and more kind of like at the forefront of Mm. like how we consume media and while I was writing my dissertation I discovered Water and Music Mm. which was at the time a newsletter that was run by Water and Music's founder Sherry Hu and she advertised looking for uh, part-time support on helping to run the community aspect of the newsletter Hmm. Uh, alongside the newsletter she launched a discord server and it was becoming more and more of a draw for people to actually sign up and and uh pay for the newsletter the fact that you got access to this community of essentially music and tech insiders people who were like super immersed in in innovating with music and technology um so i signed up kind of (laughs) on a whim and i have been with water and music ever since um but one thing that's really interesting is that we when i joined we were very much like a web2 organization it was like mm-hmm. a paid newsletter and it was only around six months into me joining that we became a die and i guess like fully started experimenting with web3 structures mm-hmm. for i guess incentivizing and um making sure our community were like included in how we operate and how we function as a business yeah no absolutely i think that was that was such a brilliant transition that that happened over that you know year and a half or whatever where it went from becoming kind of a personal newsletter and a portfolio for sherry and expanded into a community that then you know became this 
this this community driven DAO, which is a a, a a decentralized autonomous organization for people listening. And so, was that your intro in, you know, to Web three? Is when there started to be conversations happening within water and music that were turning toward you know reorganizing as a DAO, or or, or had you already been spending some time? you know, in that space? Interestingly enough, when I was working in management consulting, I did work in some really early blockchain projects. Hmm. This was between like 2017, 2018. Um, but they were very much uh, business use cases involving, you know, verifying assets. Um, you know, like I think the use case I worked on specifically were um, to do with property um, certificates. Uh, hmm. they weren't particularly inspiring projects because they never actually came to fruition. Mm-hmm. So uh, I wouldn't say that I was necessarily, you know, <laughs> pilled by them. But <laughs> I think working for, when I joined Water and Music, um, it was really interesting because I kind of was introduced to uh, Web3 as something that was, culture first rather than uh you know DeFi or or something that was purely financial so it's really interesting i think like there are a couple of people who've worked in dives that especially like kind of media and culture dives like fwb or that has been their introduction into web3 it's been like via the culture via music via um media and they really don't connect with like the ideas around DeFi or they they're not even particularly knowledgeable about it like I I don't know much about DeFi at all um Mm -hmm. and it makes it really yeah I guess really different to people who've maybe got into web3 via like bitcoin or something like that so yeah I think it was a relatively unique introduction but I think there is like a growing cohort of people who have been drawn to web3 for um because they care about music because they care about media because they care about the creator economy in general versus like because they care about money right necessarily it's it seems a healthier introduction to the space yeah although i mean ultimately if you do care about music and media and creators you do care about money as well but it's just more like it's more um, of a byproduct of like a shitty industry than you know yeah. than being like the priority though. Yeah. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Yeah. Um no, that's really cool. I, I I'm really curious how you know, uh you know, how your skill sets transferred to you know, to community management in this, you know, primarily digital community or you know, at least digital first community. Um you know, because like you know, the role of community lead and community manager has be has become such an important role, you know, across Web three projects, and you know, is relatively new in in terms of a role that people seek out. It's you know, attracted people from all all different types of backgrounds, and I'm curious how how that transition was, you know, for you in going from being a music journalist slash you know slash consultant, having a background in PR and marketing to entering this community and, you know, being tasked with the community lead and, you know, and the community management, like, how did that feel? And how, you know, how did your skills transfer? What was uncomfortable? What wasn't, you know, I'd love to hear more. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm so thrilled that I stumbled into being a community manager, because I do think it's the perfect role for me. One Mm. thing I didn't mention is that throughout university, I had a part-time job working in my university library. Uh, cool. just on the kind of customer service desk and I absolutely loved that job I loved um, helping people getting to know people getting like a little insight into what people were researching and knowing that I played some small role in helping them even if it was just like helping them find a book or you know helping them use a printer um, I really enjoyed like those like positive like micro interactions mm. um, and actually, I think that one thing that people don't want to talk about when it comes to community management is that it has a huge amount in common with like customer service. And mm-hmm. actually, lots of community management roles often combine customer service, some element of customer service or customer support with more strategic stuff, 
which is actually something I find really rewarding because you're on the ground helping people with their problems, but you also are empowered to make strategic change to do something about it, you know, to actually use your knowledge to make your product or service right. or community better. Um, but I, yeah, I think my, um, I think my skill set has transitioned really well. I also think like journalism, like uh, ideally if you're a good journalist, I think you'll be curious about people, curious mm-hmm. about um, what people do at work, curious about how people experience things. And I think both of those impulses, kind of feed into um yeah i guess like a community management skill set where you should be i think i think empathetic and mm. curious um but also you need to have like a level of strategic thinking like you need to be able to make change as well as uh as well as provide support people on a day-to-day uh basis right that makes a lot of sense it kind of coalesces a lot of those skill sets into that into that role then i i mean i'm a, i'm sure there's been a huge evolution you know over your you know over the course of your tenure there i mean especially considering like you know the frenetic pace of web3 in general but also just you know the fact that you came in and it was still very much web2 you know the dao hadn't been to, you know, hadn't been introduced and i it seems you know as I guess from my perspective, as someone who is is part of water music, but is you know is admittedly not incredibly active in the community, it just seems like there's a lot of nuance and you know a lot of different teams and guilds that uh, you know all bubble up to this larger you know whole. And you know I'm curious how your role you know has transitioned, you know what that evolution has felt like for you upon first entry when you were working part time to this like full-blown you know like media research organization that uh you know is really well known and really well regarded in the space at this point yeah it, it was really overwhelming definitely the last the first 12 months hmm. um of the rule were it was like hyper growth it was it was pretty insane um i think that it wasn't as turbulent as it could have been though and I think Mm. that's genuinely because we worked so closely with our community in terms of like how we navigated Mm. water music changing and growing um so it always felt like people were behind the change 100% um rather than it feeling like you know you're steering <laughs> steering a ship and you don't know if everyone right, wants right. to be on the ship it felt right. like more like we were all steering it together which i guess is like why the die structure worked so well for us mm-hmm. we've always really valued community feedback as should any organization obviously but right. i would say it's our most important source of feedback like it's a huge um factor in our editorial decisions and our organizational decisions so I think one thing that really helped in terms of transitioning to die was that it actually just gave a formal structure to how we were operating anyway hmm. versus it being a huge behavior change for people. It was like, this already happens. Like we already make editorial decisions based on, on your interests. We already, you know, make changes to our website and, and our community based on your interests. So formalizing this just, made sense to mm. people mm-hmm. and I'm one thing I'm really proud of is just how many people actually set up um crypto wallets to take part in the water music die um mm. I think it was like over 50 percent of people who wow. joined the die that was their first uh crypto transaction so wow yeah really really pleased with that yeah that's amazing that's a you know huge important onboarding effort. Um, you know throughout that process of, of you know formalizing you know the structures that they're already there, but um, you know hadn't been formalized at that point. And you know, after that, I'm curious how you know if you could just give me a lens into how you know how strategy and how different projects work. You know, like what what is the proposal process like? 
what is your role in organizing and helping to facilitate to lead different projects? Like, how do those take shape? Um, you know, if you could give me an example, just a lens into like what that process looks like, that would be really cool. Yeah, of course. Um, so you're probably aware of this, but we divide our research into seasons. Um, mm -hmm. I think seasons is used really commonly by dyes, um, but it means different things depending on what dye you're looking at. Um, but generally, it's a kind of big overarching theme that uh, I guess describes like a number of projects or like the dyes activity over um, a, ser a series of weeks or months. Um, so yeah, we, d we divide our research into seasons where we really intensively look at a big hot button issue that's impacting the music industry, um, usually around some form of like emerging technology. So uh, previous seasons have looked at Web3, obviously, um, music in the metaverse, and the season we're working on at the moment is on creative AI. Um, and actually, we tend to make top-down decisions about what the theme will be, so we don't actually put that to a vote. But it's so rooted in our community's interests anyway. Like that's a huge factor for the core mm. team in deciding what the season theme will be. Uh, it, it tends to align um, with our community's interests really naturally. And especially with <laughs> um, Creative AI, our most recent season. Right. It was just such a no-brainer because right. <laughs> a few weeks after we... And <laughs> we decided that that would be our theme. Um, Chat GPT just exploded, and mm -hmm. there was this huge flurry of interest um, around uh, visual creative AI tools. And um, obviously, music is now following in pretty hot pursuits. Right. Uh, but we come together as a community and basically have like a giant brainstorming session where we work out what the main threads uh, of the research project will look like so they usually tend to be like again pretty broad themes so like in the creative ai season we're looking at the ethics of creative ai that's one project another project is looking at the legal implications of creative ai and the third project is looking at business models and how uh music creators and, and artist teams can actually use these tools to monetize their hmm. music or to streamline their music production processes um so looking at more, how can you apply this to your day-to-day -day work? Um, so the, it tends to be quite like a sprawling organic hmm. process, um, which involves lots of like massive Figma files and right. hundreds and hundreds of Discord messages. Um, but it all kind of comes together uh, in the end. <laughs> right. I mean, does it happen like through, you know, do you have, do you build informal touch bases in terms, you know, in terms of, you know, what the timelines look like? Do you structure that over the course of, you have to say, hey, the season's going to be this long. Here's how we're going to break it up. And then on top of that, I'm curious, like, you know, who the participants are in, in, in each of these projects and teams and how that's split across core contributors and you know, people who you wouldn't qualify as core contributors. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of the timelines, we just tend to split it up into weeks. Um, and to be honest, that because dies are, <laughs> I think someone said, like an excellent way to align incentives, but a pretty poor way to get stuff done. Like we tend to be yeah. pretty, a little like, loose with the timelines if necessary. We've ha we don't really use any kind of formal project management um, tools or techniques. I would say, having worked in agile workplaces, mm -hmm. we have a lot in common with like agile workflows and that process of iterating and reiterating and having kind of a a set of tasks that you want to get done that week. Um, but really, not there isn't any kind of like grand structure to how we um, how we uh, plan our projects. And then in terms of who actually takes part, um, it tends to be a mixture of the core team and uh, we have like lots of super users in our Discord server, people who 
I would say are kind of like water music, just power users. Um, mm-hmm. But invariably, there will be new people that come in every season because they will have joined because they've heard that the project actually relates to what they're working a project they're working on at the moment. So we've had a set of like really exciting new contributors come in for this season of Creative AI because um, it's completely different, obviously, like a different um, set of companies and tools that we were looking at for, for a Web3 project, for example. So there is like a pretty natural churn when it comes to contributors. And I think mm-hmm. that's both a positive to the season structure, but also maybe a negative. I mean, the positive is that you get this kind of constant uh, supply of fresh voices. And then a negative is maybe that people can't be experts in everything. Um, Although we do like to say in the server, like enthusiasm is expertise. And ultimately there is a place for everyone to get involved in these projects, especially if you come from the traditional music industry as well, Mm. because I think it's really important to, like retain those voices at, in our research and to make sure that it's grounded in how the music industry operates today versus like how it could operate tomorrow. And then in terms of the split of labour, I think the seasons are shaking up um, more, uh, kind of having uh, community members chiming in, I guess the more the strategy stage kind of giving their opinions on different tools um helping to shape our research and then the core team are very much on the execution so actually you know getting the copy down getting the work out there Mm -hmm. and obviously like nothing gets published without going past sherry she's like an absolutely (laughs) like a masterful editor Mm. um and she's absolutely like the final word when it comes to quality control in our research so that's really important but yeah i would say that one the the main area we find that our community members a really enjoy getting involved in and where they really add value is i guess the kind of like conceptualizing the research prioritizing the research obviously if they are working on startups in the space they can provide a really um a really uh, important role in terms of like actually running demos in the server or giving us access to tools or access to data. So those are really the main areas that community members add value. No, it makes sense. I'm curious. I'm, I'm curious how, um, you know, across such a wide spectrum of participation levels and, and you know, levels of effort and energy, how, um, you know, how you think about and deal with things like uh, compensation and attribution when it comes you know, to gauging contributions that people are making? That's a really good question. I think we're definitely trying to refine this process constantly, as are a lot of dives, I think. Mm-hmm. In terms of attribution, it's, we don't use any um, attribution software or, or tools or anything like that. It's generally down to the project lead who are often core team members to essentially um, identify and follow up with and get, um, you know, payment details from people who have taken part in the project. So I guess that's not so different from working in any project um, or any kind of like freelancing or contracting uh, uh, projects. I guess it's pretty similar. Um, And then in terms of financing, we our work our research is funded by our treasury, um, which is funded by NFT sales. So mm-hmm. we sell NFTs to fund um, our research, um, and then the profits from the NFTs are split between the designers and the project leads, mm-hmm. which is um, it's separate from Water Music LLC, which is um, the core team. Uh, Got it. Kind of sit under that umbrella, so it's kind of a dual structure. I think that's not uncommon for dives. Yeah, yeah, that sounds familiar, and that's a cool way to run it. Um, and you know, over the course of this, you know, I've I've 
I've been impressed, and I think you know a lot of people are because you know as an observer, you know as an observer, as someone who's like in the community but but peripheral to it, and, and you know tuned in and reading everything that comes out of water music, but not necessarily taking an active role in the research and and things. It just it feels like a very you know well oiled machine. You know, so much important research with you know very potent bleeding edge analysis that I'm very grateful for, and I reference all the time, and from the outside without having a clear view of you know the inner workings and how all of these things are coming together it just seems like it's this incredibly efficient you know well-oiled operation and you know that is creating this this incredibly valuable output i think for you know for the entire music industry and you know and as someone who's who's kind of you know at the top of that who's facilitating a lot of you know these projects i'm curious uh you know, if it feels that way for you, and and then also from your personal understanding of, you know, of the music industry, like how has that evolved from the time that you first became part of Water Music to, you know, to now? Yeah, I think Water Music is incredibly different to any other like music industry trade publication. And it's precisely because we have such a close feedback loop with the community who we're researching and who's consuming our research. Um, I think that it allows us to get just a level deeper than um, a journalist who, you know, is really looking at the music industry from a remove and may see themselves as more part of like the media right. industry versus like the music industry, like versus the music business. But like, we very much feel like very heavily embedded in the music industry and I also think that the community aspects give people a real incentive to make sure that our research is fair and it's like a fair representation of how the work they're doing is how it actually is like how these businesses and and startups and technologies actually operate Um, and I think the fact that we are independent and membership funded means that people do have a real sense of ownership um and we don't there's i think there's kind of uh nothing stopping us from just going like a a level deeper than maybe other industry publications do right now that i mean that makes a ton of sense you know having that that additional layer of intimacy with you know, the organizations that you're writing about and that you're working with. And then from, but I'm, I'm curious, like from your personal perspective, because I, you know, for instance, I, you know, as a music journalist, I, I've, when I was primarily doing that, interviewing people, going to shows, writing about shows, I had a good sense of the music and the scenes that I was writing about. But I, I think I was less informed about the the industry mechanics at large until I started you know, you know, until I founded a startup, until I got into Web three, and you know, exploring all these different, all these, all these different realms, um, and I'm curious if that was also your experience. Yeah, a hundred percent. It definitely was. Um, I mean, it's going to sound silly, but I really wasn't aware of how much of a complete nightmare music copyright was until <laughs> yeah. I started working at Water Music. It really mm. is. Uh, a side of the industry that consumers are completely shielded from mm-hmm. which makes sense because I don't think any like, casual music fans can be expected to untangle just how much of a logistical mess it, it all is um, mm-hmm. yeah that's absolutely my um, my experience as well although I have to say I think that maybe in certain online circles there is a growing interest in um, learning about music industry machinations. Hmm. And also I think in using like the idea of music industry, of the music industry as a machine in kind of like an aesthetic way in your art. Like I'm thinking about, for example, that TikTok trend where lots of pop stars made TikToks and then, the caption would be like, my management is forcing me to do a TikTok right, to right, right. my song, um, <laughs> which 
uh, Char- I mean, Charlie X, X at least has confirmed was a marketing ploy to mm-hmm. make people listen to her song. Yeah. Um, but I do think there is like a growing um, like interest in kind of hearing more about how the music industry actually operates. And, and also I do think that like, especially like in pop music, there has always been like that tension between like, you know, who is the pop star really and how much is like mm. their label or, or their management. Um, so I think the music industry lends itself really easily to like conspiracy like that. Um, yeah. But <laughs> in terms of like the nitty gritty, um, yeah, definitely something that I only begun learning about um, when I started uh, working for water music yeah it's sort of a black box i th- i think you know to to most of the public I, you know i think intentionally so like you know how a lot of these mechanisms work and how contracts work and, and copyright and ip because it is so convoluted and not always artist friendly uh those don't often make it to the public eye and yeah you know i think you're right i think one of the interesting things about you know, like I have also sensed this kind of growing interest in these these industry machinations. I think because of some of the success, it's very niche still, but the success and ideas and organizations that are rallying around, you know, these blockchain powered technologies. You know, in Web three, even something like an NFT, which which is a non fungible token, um, that. Uh, is relatively simple, but in, in, in order to like relatively or to like actually glean and understand why it's powerful and why it's effective, you you almost have to ask the question: well, what 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 is wrong with the industry before? Like, why weren't people already able to do these things? Like, you know, discover like like you know, build their community through the music itself to be able to find people uh, through the music, like if the people who. Who are consuming the music, build community around them, all in the same space, and use this token as a powerful rallying mechanism. Um, so yeah, I mean if that's like one of the, been the best things that I've seen about Web three is just like this growing interest. Like, okay, why are people interested in this thing? It's because oh, it's it's actually trying to challenge these kind of legacy you know, mechanics that have been you know like historically fucking quite a few people <laughs> in the industry. Yeah, exactly. That's that's a really, really great point. Um, and I think one thing that's really interesting is that if you speak to people who are working on these new um, kind of profit, profitability models for the music industry, um, whether that's NFTs or blockchain technologies or anything direct to fan, really, um, because I definitely see Web3 as like, a technology under the director fan umbrella mm. um, and i think there are lots of of tools and startups that are, are working towards uh, a similar aim of helping more creators actually make a living um through their art um but anyway when you talk to people who work in these um on these new tools and startups they have invariably tried to be a creator themselves at mm. some point and mm-hmm. that's really lit a fire under them in terms of how broken the industry is and that's been their motivating factor um and i think so many people especially i see it all the time at the water music server so many people who have who come to water music to learn about these technologies and to work out how to apply them in their day-to-day work have done so because of having that really hands-on um experience with mm-hmm. the music industry and and you know kind of living out just how how broken it is which is interesting because I think lots of the criticism uh lots of the people who are critiquing um like web3 in general often won't have tried to do that they won't have that experience working in the music industry or in the creator economy more generally and I because I think if you have worked in these spheres you will realize you know where these technologies are coming from and and why they're important um, mm-hmm. because ultimately there just has to be another way yeah that's that's the hope i mean hopefully we're building toward that 
you know, I was struck, you know, kind of on the flip side of, of, of that. I was struck by, you know, something. I was reading some of your journalism before, uh, you know, before we chatted. Uh, I think I was specifically struck while reading your piece on the song Zombie by the Cranberries and you know, telling the history and contextualizing that piece. I think it, you uh, wrote for Stereogam, right? Yes, that was for Stereogam. Um, yeah. yeah, great song. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Um, but I, you know, I was kind of struck in thinking about, you know, our conversation by, you know, the fact that because, uh, you know, so much of, you know, you know, of the potential of Web three and music is this new tool set that artists can use to build community and you know to cultivate and eventually monetize, you know, that community in various ways and you know so much the narrative even you know so much the writing is is you know about the tools itself it's about the utility uh you know the mechanics that these artists are employing to release their music through and to connect with people which is incredibly important and really powerful and you know deserves i think a large chunk of the narrative um but what I realize is that there, you know, there's much less, you know, there's much less time and energy and words given to the music itself. Like what, actually writing about the music, like, like we have done, you know, in more traditional music journalism, you know, writing about the artists, contextualizing them, writing about the music itself, yeah. and uh, you know, I kind of miss that, and I don't have a sense. You know, I would love to, you know, hear your take on this, but I don't feel like I have really have a sense of what kind of music people are are releasing in web3 generally and what it's like i, I know more of the names yeah. that are connected to, you know through the different mechanics and like their drops and releases that they've done more than you know the actual music itself yeah absolutely um that is a really interesting phenomenon around web3 music and i think there's a couple of different schools of thought in this um like one school of thought is that if you, you know, describe an artist as a web three artist, they they may very well push back and say, no, I'm not. Um, hmm. Web three and and blockchain is just the mechanism by which I'm releasing my art, and it has hmm. no like imp material impact on how my music signs, um, which is fair enough. Um, I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, I don't think that Web3 music is a genre, but I think there are some, maybe some elements, whether that's sonic or aesthetic connecting um, these artists. But I think it will, you know, it's such a cliche, but we're still so early. And I think it yeah. will probably take a few years to percolate before we can look back and say, oh, this, these are the features of like this micro genre. Like, oh, this is what it makes a Web3 artist a Web3 artist. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I think like we may, we may have to revisit <laughs> web three as a genre in a few years. Um, yeah, another, uh, kind of, I guess like pushback I've heard from artists, um, when this is brought up, the fact that there isn't really any proper cultural criticism, um, or music journalism around web three music is, well, why should there be? Because that's a very web two way of approaching the music industry. Like, do we need hmm. ratification from journalists, which like some web three artists see as gatekeepers and the hmm. whole idea behind how they've constructed their careers is to, you know, get rid of gatekeepers. So they're kind of pushing back on the idea that they should be seeking approval from, from critics and journalists, which is also fair enough. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think those are two interesting schools of thought that I've heard from artists in this space. Um, yeah. I think my actual view on it is that I think this writing will emerge at some point. Mm -hmm. I think it hasn't at the moment because honestly, it's still so niche and there's such a small pool of artists mm -hmm. who are successfully using these technologies. And I do think there is a feeling of not wanting to 
you don't want to be too critical on something that is so nascent. Like ultimately right. these artists are trying something new, they're experimenting. Um there is a certain point where maybe criticism isn't the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Because it's just too early a stage. But I think over the next few years we will see like more writing like proper kind of like cultural criticism on western music emerging i just think it's a little too early right now totally i think i think that makes sense and you know i've i think that's probably why people have kind of you know categorized the music that exists across these you know nft marketplaces um and web3 players and aggregators as web3 music because there isn't enough of it to categorize it you know, further, and it's sort of yeah, sort of adopted this like catch-all sort of as a genre for the time being. But I agree, like as as it grows, that that will probably change. And I and I hope that it's like that. You know, journalists and musicians can, you know, I think that it's an important symbiotic relationship in in sharing stories and sharing contexts um, that can happen i mean i understand that you know that kind of pushback from artists like do we actually need that and maybe when you have more of an an autonomous you know relationship with your community maybe it's less important but i do feel like there's there's some sort of cultural symbiosis between those two entities that i hope emerges you know over the coming years yeah absolutely and even though some artists like i guess like rightfully look on music criticism with suspicion it's also i think an important um feedback mechanism for lots of artists and it's also important in terms of fans actually processing the music that they listen to um like a good review or you know a good long-form article on an album can definitely like heighten your enjoyment of, of that record so i think it would be a shame if these artists weren't, you know, to take part in that, because I think it can be a force for good. Right. We may be biased, but I agree with you. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, And yeah, in terms of watching music, um, one thing I will add, even though I don't think this is necessarily a genre yet, um, I do think that there are definitely some similarities. I think that Web3 particularly appeals to artists who may be full uh, between like genre boundaries, um, I'm really thinking of someone like Latasha, who is mm-hmm. just an incredibly varied artist. It, it would be impossible to slot her music into one genre. Um, I've heard <laughs> at least seven different genres from her, like sometimes mm-hmm. museum tracks, um, and it really makes sense why someone like that would maybe struggle with finding right. a route to success within, uh, like the traditional music industry which still uses genre demarcations as like how they organize work and and whole teams so um i think definitely that's probably a feature of web3 music that i think is like present right now and one that we can i think see more and more of these kind of like genre bending artists yeah yeah that's a really interesting observation and uh you know perhaps we don't need to rely on you know more traditional categorizations as much as we should and i know there's you know certain there there is certainly damage that has been done because of that and and i th- i think it's it's not been it's not been inclusive to some of the people who don't you know fit well within those different umbrellas um but i also think you know at the same time there is there, there are, are you know a hundred thousand songs being uploaded to streaming services every single day, and obviously, music NFTs, Web three music, like it's it's a much more niche, uh, niche ecosystem right now. That will change, and at some point, you know, it's sort of a similar argument to why you know why journalists are also important is we're going to need curators. You know, we can't at some point we, there's yeah. just going to be too much music you know to parse through ourselves that's why one of the reasons that journalists are so important and you know being able to classify in certain ways just to help people find the things that 
they want to find. A hundred percent. And that becomes even more important, like in Web3, where so much of, our, of participation is through actually investing in these mm. artists. Um, mm. So I think definitely curation is incredibly important. And that's really being done at the platform level right now. Mm-hmm. Like we're seeing mm-hmm. um, platforms like Catalog and Find, uh, obviously, pretty heavily curate the artists that they onboard but that isn't scalable at all um and also it's much better for the ecosystem and for like the diversity of music that we're um that we're exposed to that that curation comes from fans as well as as from platforms because as we've seen in streaming era uh it isn't always uh, <laughs> the healthiest uh, media landscape when platforms are curating your content. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a good segue into my last question for you, which is slightly unconnected to the rest, but I ask everybody this, put you on the spot a little bit. Uh, you, you're going to a desert island and you get to bring three albums with you. Uh, <laughs> you can help people listening. You're, uh, yeah, it's your moment of curation. <laughs> um, what... What are those albums? That is a great question. <laughs> um, my number one choice has to be East by Joanna Newsom. Uh, Joanna Newsom is probably my favorite artist ever. Um, she, I mean, <laughs> hasn't released a new album in nearly 10 years. And I just like hope and pray that we yeah, right, get she to hasn't. hear. Yeah, she hasn't. Um, really, uh, yeah, definitely something that I <laughs> I'm constantly preoccupied with. I have a Google alert set up, so as soon as she releases <laughs> something, I am there. Um, but yeah, East by John Newsom is just this incredible, like lush orchestral, like philosophically detailed album on lo- like love and life. And it's if you haven't heard it, like just go listen to it because it's an experience. <laughs> um, I think my second album would probably be homogenic by bjork um nice yeah my teeth haven't evolved since i was clearly <laughs> but um yeah it's an incredible album um it's definitely my favorite electronic music album ever mm. um cool yeah it's, it's just wonderful um and again an album that's like really varied as well so i think mm-hmm. i you know would be well entertained on that desert island so <laughs> like important to consider yeah, totally. Like you need to go for the like most varied musical palette you possibly mm-hmm. can. Um, like there's you know dance floor dance floor bangers on homogenic as well as music that you can conceivably have a massive cry to, which I imagine might, I will be doing a lot of. Do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, obviously. Um, <laughs> uh, and I think my third choice would be um, it would probably be Mad Villainy by Mad Villain. Mm, nice. Also, one of my favorite albums of all time. Um, and yeah, super sad to, you know, do rest in peace. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely like one of the greatest like artists ever. Um, yeah, again, yeah. I think um, Mad Villainy is just like an incredibly varied album. It's just like this incredible, like incredibly irreverent, like kaleidoscopic um, hip hop record. And yeah, I think those are my three. That's a great trio of records well done <laughs> i'm glad you think so but cool cat uh you know it's been a pleasure it's been great talking you know real quick where's the best place for people listening to follow you and or get involved with water and music yeah of course um so water and music is open to everyone if you go to watermusic.com slash membership you can join us um we have payment options in fiat or crypto um and your membership gets you access to a super supportive and engaged Discord community of music tech experts, um, as well as uh, an archive of research and data on the music industry spanning back to like 2019. And also our flagship music and Web3 dashboard, which gets you access to music NFT sales data, um, secondary sales data as well. Um, so definitely join us if, if you like access to all those good things and a community to help you dissect it um and in terms of me you can follow me at katolivia94 on twitter cool awesome awesome thank you kat it's great to have you 
Thank you very much. All right, that's it for this episode of Big Brother and the Hodling Company. I'm your host, McKeegan Voice, and you can keep up with me and all the latest Web3 music trends on Twitter at McKeegan. That's M-A-C-E-A-G-O-N. This show is a production of Decentral Media, and you can visit us at decentral.io. And remember, only you can prevent and fend off Big Brother. <laughs>